these things are sins, right? And that's true. But that is really a only surface level way to look at the situation. And the Bible says, look deeper, look at the heart behind all those various sins. And when you look at the heart, it's really just one sin. It's really just the same sin over and over and over again. And, um, and you know, the, the, the Bible tells us that there is a sin behind all the other sins. There's a sin underneath all the various sins. And all the various sins are really just the outworkings of this one sin. And that sin is when we forsake God and we turn to a God substitute. All right? And uh, that is the fundamental evil that drives everything that we do. And unless we understand this, right, we're blind. Unless we understand this, we have a shallow view of reality. And therefore, we have no hope of remedy, no hope of a solution. All right, so uh, we're going to take a look. And here's my outline. Three points. Uh, Number one, we're going to look at what is this sin, the sin behind all sins. Number two, we're going to see that all evil comes from this. And then number three, we're going to look at, finally, the remedy. So, if you guys can turn in your bulletins, uh, we're going to read Jeremiah chapter 2. Very short passage. Uh, This is not the only place where the sin behind all sins is expressed. It's all over the Bible. Why are we looking at Jeremiah? Well, you know, this is a special event. I really like this passage. I think it's particularly beautiful and compelling. So, we're going to look at it. All right, Jeremiah chapter 2. I'll read it for you from verse 12. The passage says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of God. So let's look at point number one. What is sin? Now immediately some of you are saying, I thought you just said there was one sin. But the passage says there are two sins, right? Two evils. Well, we shouldn't get too tripped up. Uh, This is basically a Hebrew expression. It's kind of like a rhetorical device. It's really just one sin, but two expressions or two aspects of the one sin, right? Two motions, okay? And we see that because there's a unity there. And I think that gives us a pretty handy framework. So let's look at each aspect in turn, right? So number one, let's look at the first aspect. What does this text tell us? It tells us that sin is forsaking God, the fountain of living water. Now, the word forsake means to abandon. It means to renounce. It means to forget. And what the Bible tells us is that the purpose of life, the meaning of life, is to know God, is to be in communion with Him, is to make God the center of your life, to make God the ultimate value, to worship Him. And sin is to forsake that, to forsake God, to push him to the side. It doesn't necessarily mean that you reject God. It doesn't necessarily mean that you, you know, renounce, you know, that you deny he exists. You can believe in God, but just relegate him to the sides of your life, right? That he's not the ultimate importance in your life. And God says, when you forsake him, you are forsaking the fountain of living waters. Now, Um, For us as modern city dwellers, it's a little bit hard to uh, appreciate this image, right? Because it's an agricultural image. Um, So we need to do a little bit of digging. And, you know, I've looked it up a little bit for you guys. So here's my research, okay? In the ancient world, the most important thing 
was water. Right? There's no life without water. Without water, your crops would die, your livestock would die, you would die. And there were several sources of water in the ancient world, and by far the best source of water was a natural fountain or a natural spring. And so, you know, what's that? So here it is, right? So there's something called groundwater. Um, for me, that's a little trippy, right? There's water underneath the ground. And sometimes that water flows in channels or streams. And sometimes those streams hit a solid rock formation. And um, just a second. Um, so sometimes it hits a solid rock formation. And the water gushes up to the surface. And it forms this natural fountain, this natural spring. And by far, this was the absolute best source of water. Because unlike a river, it was year-round. It never dried up. And it was, you know, flowing. It was filtered. It's just this fresh, clean mountain water. And what is God saying when he says that he's a fountain of living water? He's telling us that as the body needs water for life, so the soul needs God. Right? That to worship God is life. And to forsake God, to push God to the side, is death. Right? So that's the first aspect. The second aspect is that we have forsaken God and we have dug for ourselves broken cisterns. Now, I think we should pause here and just really marvel at the unique insight the Bible gives us. What the Bible is telling us is that you can't just simply forsake God. You can't simply neglect God. You have to find something in your life that plays the role of God. You have to find a God substitute. Why? Because you see, we all need transcendence. We all need meaning. We all need something of ultimate value in our lives that gives us significance, gives us meaning, it gives us value, and therefore we need to find something that is God-like in our lives. And so what are these God substitutes? And, you know, there's so many. You know, they could be things like career achievement, um, romantic love, uh, things like wealth and possessions, popularity. I mean, it's whatever it is that defines you, whatever it is that drives you, that gets you up in the morning, that you dream about, and that when you get it, you're just elated. And when you lose it, you're absolutely devastated. And so this is how the water metaphor works. When you turn away from the fountain of living water, you have to find another water source. And that other water source, Jeremiah tells us, is a broken cistern. So what's a broken cistern? Well, I said that in the ancient world there are many sources of water. And by far the worst source was cistern water. And what is a cistern? Well, it's something that's man-made, not naturally occurring. And what you do is you would just dig a big hole in the ground and you would form this kind of Um, underground water tank, right? And you would have a little narrow neck at the top. And you would plaster the inside so that the water wouldn't seep out. And then you would use the cistern to catch rainwater, right? And this water was really the least attractive water there was because the water was stagnant. It would just stand there, right? And so it had all this debris and mud and... uh, Insects would be attracted, right? And so mosquitoes would lay their little larvae in the water. And so this water was really quite foul, and you would only use this cistern water for emergency purposes, in case there's a famine or war. And so God is saying, we have 
forsaken the living water, the fountain of living water, and we've dug up our own cisterns, God says, broken cisterns. Well, sometimes the plaster inside the cistern would crack. And so all the water would seep out. And so what God is telling us is that we've dug up our own cisterns, cisterns that that don't even hold water, right? And so what does this tell us? It tells us that when you turn away from God and when you turn to a God substitute, that God substitute, whatever it is, your career, you know, romance, children, will ultimately fail you. It can't give you meaning. It won't satisfy. Uh, Christina, my wife, uh, when she was in high school, she went to Lynbrook High, which is in the Bay Area, and uh, she used to belong to this Christian club, and, a, and the faculty advisor of the Christian club was named Coach Barnett. And he was the coach of the high school water polo team. And so he would share his story, and he said that when he was younger, just a young man, his passion, his dream was to go to the Olympics and to get a medal in water polo, right? That was just his obsession. And so he tried his hardest, his best, and he made the 1968 U.S. national team, and he competed in the Olympics, but he failed. He, the team didn't get a medal. And so he's disappointed, but he's striving and he's trying, and for four years he trained, and finally in the 1972 Munich Olympics, the Team, team USA got to the medal podium, and he got a medal. And after that night of just revelry and just parties and celebrations, the very next day, he said he was looking at his Olympic medal, the thing that he had been working for all of his life, and he felt this incredible sadness. He just felt this incredible emptiness because the loneliest moment in life is when you achieve that which you think is ultimate, but it lets you down. You see, this isn't just Coach Barnett. This is all of us. You know, think about all the people who have achieved everything they could possibly want. I mean, why is it that Hollywood actors and actresses, you know, they have everything they could possibly want, and yet they're so restless and so empty? You know, what about sports stars? Think about Tiger Woods. Here's a man at the peak of his career. Here's a man who is indisputably the best at his profession, he's won 14 masters. He's made hundreds of millions of dollars. He has anything he could possibly want. He's married to a literal model. And yet he's empty. And yet there's this incredible sadness in his life. Why is that? Think about lottery winners. You know, we all, many of us dream, oh, if only I could win the lottery, right? Well, it's been several decades now that the lottery has been introduced in the U.S., and they've done academic studies. You know, university Ph.D. people have studied lottery winners, and they found that one year after people win the lottery, this is quite surprising, most people, the vast majority of people, are more discontent and more sad and more restless, more discontent and more disconnected to people than they were before they won the lottery. Isn't that amazing? The lottery makes them more miserable. Why is that? Because whatever it is that we think is our God substitute will ultimately disappoint us. Why? Because it's not God. It can't possibly be for us what only God can be. Do you see see that? And so this is the essence of sin. The essence of sin, of all sins, is to forsake God and to turn to a God substitute. 
All right, so that's my second point. Uh, I'm sorry, that's my first point. My second point is that all evil comes from this. Underneath all the various sins, beneath all the other sins, is this one sin. And so let me give you a concrete example. Let's talk about adultery. Just this past year, a book by Gary Newman, who is a family psychologist. Uh, You may have actually seen him on Oprah. He wrote a book called The Truth About Cheating. And in the book, he's looking at why is it that men cheat? You know, what explains adultery? And uh, so he's researching this, and he found that 92% of the men who committed adultery, he asked them, why why did you do this? And and 92% said it wasn't about sex. The vast majority said it wasn't about the comparative attractiveness of my wife versus the woman I slept with, right? I mean, this is why beautiful Hollywood actresses and supermodels get cheated on all the time. It doesn't have to do with beauty. It doesn't even have to ultimately do with lust. It's not like uh, the men were just walking down the street and all of a sudden, this beautiful woman pops up and they just can't help themselves and they, they have to sleep with her. Right? What, what is it? And the reason he, he discovers, and it's really not too surprising, it's, it's uh, really pretty intuitive. He says the reason is because for emotional reasons. Men feel insecure and they feel insignificant. And so this is what he wrote um, in his book. He said, the mistress makes them feel different, makes them feel uh, appreciated and admired. Men look strong and powerful and capable, but on the inside, they're insecure like everybody else. And they're searching and looking for somebody to build them up and make them feel valued. You see, what these men are saying to themselves is, if I am in the arms of another woman, then finally I'll feel worthwhile. Then finally I'll, f- I'll feel valued. And what they are doing is they are looking in these, to these other women what only God can give them. Right? They're using sex with strange women to be their God substitute. And so therefore, adultery, in essence... I hope you see this, is forsaking God and turning to a God substitute. Is, is digging up our own cisterns, right? That's what adultery in essence is. And this is the sin behind all other sins. And we could look at so many examples. You know, we won't because it, for the sake of time. But we can do this exact same analysis. We can look at, you know, whatever it is. Lying, um, chronic anxiety about finances, workaholism, you know, exploitation of the poor, whatever it is. Behind that sin, if you dig down deep and if you do the analysis, it's the one sin, the sin of forsaking God and digging up our own cisterns. And uh, unless we understand this deeper sin, we're hopeless. And we'll always be only addressing the surface symptoms. You know, going back to the book by Gary Newman, um, The Truth About Cheating. So he wrote this book because he wanted to help women to prevent adultery, right? He wanted, to pre- he wanted to help women to keep their husbands faithful. And so he has this advice from, based on his research. And so are you guys ready? Do you, you guys want to hear his prescription? He says, women, if you want to keep your man faithful, compliment him. Constantly affirm him. Constantly um, praise him to the skies. Uh, constantly give him the strokes he needs. Otherwise, he's going to go somewhere else. And uh, this is why I don't suggest this book. But you know what the problem is with that bit of advice? You know, no doubt, 
on a superficial level, no doubt, you know, there is some effect to that. But all you're going to do is make your husband into this puffed-up, egomaniacal monster, right? And not only that, it doesn't even work. There are so many cases where, you know, the wife, as humanly speaking, is just so great. You know, she loves her husband. She cares for him. She's so attentive. She's so understanding. And still, her husband cheats. And so that's not the the prescription. The real problem is our underlying hunger, our underlying thirst for meaning and significance and the fact that we look for it outside of God. That's the real problem. So that's my second point. Then what is the remedy? Well, the solution seems pretty simple, right? All we have to do is turn away from the broken cisterns and turn back to God. But it's not that simple. And the reason why it's not that simple is because our hearts are twisted. And even though um, we know, even though we're told, even though intellectually we may know, what I'm holding is a broken system, it doesn't matter. We still love it and we don't desire God. We could tell ourselves until we're blue in the face, the woman, the strange woman I'm with is a broken sister and I need to find my meaning and significance in God. It doesn't work. It won't hold us back. And so what is the real solution? Well, there's a story in the New Testament where Jesus Christ uh, is meet, meets this Samaritan woman by a well. And uh, he has this conversation with her and he says to her, um, can I have a drink of water? And the thing you need to know is that Samaritans and Jews, uh, Jesus is a Jew, Samaritans and Jews never associated with each other. And so the woman is taken aback and she says, how is it that you're talking to me? Um, How is it that you're asking me for this? And Jesus replies, he says something so enigmatic. He says, woman, if you knew who it is that was asking you, you would ask him for living water. And the woman is intrigued. She says, you know, what is this that you're talking about? What is this living water? And this is the explanation Jesus gives in John chapter 4, and I'll read it for you. Everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of the well water, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the solution. You see, what this story tells us is that Jesus Christ is the living water that we have been searching for all of our lives. And it's not enough to try to turn back to God, right? We have to look at Jesus Christ and then our hearts will be satisfied. Because you see, Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God with us. And he lived the perfect life we should have lived. And he suffered the penalty we should have suffered. And do you remember when he was hanging on the cross what he said? Do you guys remember? He said, I thirst. Right? He said, I thirst. You see, all of us, all of our lives have been turning to our own broken cisterns. And we've been trying to suck up, you know, moisture and water from these broken cisterns. And of course, there is none. And so therefore, we should suffer the thirst, right? But Jesus Christ, 
who alone perfectly obeyed the Father, who alone perfectly put God in the center of his life, on the cross suffered the cosmic thirst as our substitute in our place. And when we see Jesus Christ dying for us in that way, when we see Jesus suffering the cosmic thirst in our place, then our hearts will be warmed, you know? And then we'll be transformed. And then we'll look at whatever it is that is our God substitute. You know, whatever it is, our career, our academics, you know, our marriage. And we'll say, that's not the real thing. Jesus Christ is the real thing. And we'll drink deeply of Jesus and we'll be satisfied. And now I'm not saying that, you know, when you believe this, you'll never sin. Of course not, because we forget, right? We lose our sight on Jesus. But the Bible tells us that as we gaze upon Jesus Christ, dying there for us, you know, giving himself completely, unconditionally for us, loving us in that way, we'll change. You know, we'll, the, the God substitutes the broken cisterns in our lives will slowly become more and more less attractive and less appealing to us. And that is the gospel. That is the only hope of humanity. And that is, you know, the hope of renewal that the gospel promises, that one day we'll have this eternal water, this living water welling up in us, giving us eternal life. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge that you are the living water. And we confess to you that in so many ways, all of us, even those of us who call you are Lord and Savior for years, we still turn to broken cisterns. And Lord, we pray that you would wean us away, you would draw us back to you, you would call us to repentance because of your love and your kindness. And we pray that we would continually seek out the gospel in worship, in reading the Bible, in the fellowship of the saints, and all these wonderful things that you give us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.